Ye sons of Dan O'Connor's guard, pray pay attention to my ditty. It's all about a sailor lad whose birthplace was in Dublin city. My song is for to demonstrate a story with a pious moral. Beginning close to Carlisle Bridge and ending in the Isles of Coral. The song is called George's Key or the Forgetful Sailor and it was written by James Montgomery, who was the first Irish film censor. He was described by his friend Oliver St. John Gogarty as the best Dubliner of us all and on his death 50 years ago in 1943, the Irish Times wrote, By his death, Dublin loses one of its outstanding figures its most brilliant wit and conversationalist, one of its kindest citizens, a man who loved Dublin and whom Dublin loved in return. James Montgomery was born in Dublin on the 8th of October 1870. The family lived on Lime Street off Sir John Rogerson's Quay. Towards the end of his life, Montgomery recalled his childhood on the Dublin Quays in the 1870s. My father died in 1872 when I was one and a half years old, carried off after three days' sickness by the smallpox which swept Europe after the Franco-Prussian War. My father was only 27 when he died. My brother Tom was born six months after his death. I know very little of my father. To my mother, he was the handsomest and most gentlemanly man in Ireland. She told me that he came to Dublin from Moy Valley, where he had been reared by his aunt Catty at Ribbentail Bridge. He was apprenticed to a baker named Webb of Corn Market, but his health broke down and he lost the trade. He was subsequently employed at Longstaff's Cork Bakery, Stephen's Green, and was in that job when he died. My mother said he was a great dandy, tall hat on Sundays, and proud of his small feet and hands. My mother, at the age of 24, had to face the world to keep herself and her two orphans, with her father beyond his labour and her blind old mother. She opened a small shop in a very small cottage in Lime Street at the corner of Brady's Court. My grandmother was blinded by Sir William Wilde, so I was told. It appears that she had eye trouble and went with my mother one morning to Wilde's dispensary, where he attended the poor. He was a rough man in his treatment, and he blew something in her eyes. She never again saw a stim. Hop Montgomery remembers James's mother. Granny Montgomery kept a huckster shop. She kept everything in it. Kept all her accounts in her head. She's a very, very clever woman. And she used to refer to the children, to the second boy. I should have said James and Tom. Tom was the second boy. And she always referred to him as the boy who never had a father. My mother sold everything. I remember making rows of herrings on iron rods, the rod run through the gills. These were the bloaters. There were also red herrings, rodded in the same way. The salt herrings were in barrels of brine, and every Lent potted herrings, for which she was famous in the parish. The preparation of the potting was a big event. The little packages of spices, the whole pepper, the lemons, the bay leaf and, I think, a soup zone of porter. There were also cloves and cinnamon. The smell of the finished product was delicious. 
The sign that they were ready and for sale was a small box with a white cloth around it on a chair outside the shop door. Then the customers trooped along with bowls and dishes. Each herring was decked by a bay leaf and a dab of mustard immersed in the fragrant brown liquid. There was a saying, dressed to kill like a potted herring. I can recall one day when some Greek sailors in their stiff white petticoats, shoes with turned-up toes and red pirate caps, bought some sacks of potatoes and carried them to Ringsend Basin, which was crowded by small craft. I don't think they excited any wonder in me. I'd already seen two Chinamen in pigtails, and niggers were not an unusual sight on the Dublin Keys. A schooner sailed from George's Key For foreign parts one sultry season And on the shore a maiden stood And cried like one bereft of raisin Oh, Johnny Doyle, my love for you Is true but full of deep contrition For what will all the neighbours say about myself and me sad condition. I see myself watching tall ships from the seven seas coming to their moorings by the liffy side, and a very small boy looking wistfully from the point of the wall along the stretch of river which flowed past the pigeon house out to the magical sea, hoping some day to sail away on a beautiful craft to the farthest parts of the earth. He was sent to school at the age of three, to Mrs Sheridan's on the corner of Lime Street and Sir John's Quay. I must have spent a couple of years with Mrs Sheridan. I can't recall any time in my life when I couldn't read. I'm told that I was decidedly old-fashioned. I wrote American letters for the neighbourhood before I was ten years old. These letters never varied in formula. Dear James or John or Mary, as the case might be, I take up my pen to write to you these few lines, hoping it finds you in good health, as this leaves me at present, thank God for it. The capstan turned and sails unfurled, the schooner scudded down the liffy, the damsel gave a piercing shriek, she was a mother in a jiffy. The vessel crossed the harbour bar, her course was set for foreign waters, to China, where they're very wise, and drown at birth their surplus daughters. At the age of 16, James Montgomery left school, went to work in the gas company and married at 19. He remained with the gas company until he retired for health reasons in 1923, by which time he had married again on the death of his first wife. What was he like when Hop Montgomery, his daughter-in-law, first met him in 1922? Handsome. Charming. Gracious. Very clever. Oliver St. John Gogarty describes a trim figure in a blue reefer jacket who looked like a seafaring man. Monty is the wittiest man and the kindliest wit in town, said Gogarty. He recalled meeting him one day and inviting him into the bailey. I can't, said Monty. She is waiting for me at Mitchell's. She's not in too good a humour. When we were walking past the bailey, it reminded her that we are 23 years married today. What do you propose, she asked. Three minutes silence, said I. He was once asked by an English visitor to describe the difference between the gate and the abbey theatres. He replied that it was the difference between Sodom and Bigara. 
Montgomery was one of a group that congregated in the smoking room upstairs in the Bailey on Duke Street. It included Arthur Griffith, Seamus O'Sullivan, James Stevens, and Oliver St. John Gogarty. Eudic O'Connor is Gogarty's biographer. Everything that I, that I got about him in writing Gogarty's life was a man of extraordinary, extraordinary warmth, kindness, intelligence, and wit. And nobody disliked him. Very unusual in Ireland. And to be a wit and not to be disliked is, um, it's almost like being uh, a, a member of the royal court of the Sultan of Turkey uh, and, and a eunuch and at the same time to have been the father of a child. Uh, conversation and talk has always been an innate part of Dublin life. Uh, a love of um, communication, a love of words, a love of language. It's almost uh, the country idea of the storyteller sitting around the fire transferred to the city. Uh, and I think the result of that uh, love of words and love of laughter and has been the fact that the great talkers in the English language have really all come from Dublin. Uh, Wild, I suppose the greatest talker probably the world ever knew, um, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, Thomas Moore, George Bernard Shaw, they, they all sort of exhibited their talents on foreign fields. But people like, <coughs> like uh, Gogarty and Jimmy Montgomery and George Redding and Smiley and all these people of, of uh, Seamus O'Sullivan of, of later years, uh, they followed in the same habit. They they brought stories into the bar of, of things that had happened that day and converted them into um, into jokes, limericks, epigrams. And because that group were, some of them were people of international repute as writers, um, uh, th those remarks uh, were often encased in very um, uh, exquisite garments, so to speak, or forms. Um, the Bailey group would be uh, largely Arthur Griffith. He was very much the centre of that. That was the founder of Sinn Féin in 1905. He began the Sinn Féin movement, which was uh, designed to uh, get uh, uh, Irish self-government by refusing to recognise the, the system and uh, really possibly by civil disobedience, etc., etc. It was, it was um, the beginning of the whole movement. And uh, Griffith was quite the centre of that group. Uh, and then Jimmy Montgomery was there, and uh, Gogarty and Seamus O'Sullivan. Uh, and they literally come in at the end of the day with their latest remark about, about what had happened um, uh, and our comment on the events of the day. Uh, and in that, in those, in that uh, atmosphere... Uh, Jimmy Montgomery's wit was paramount. Uh, I suppose uh, Gogarty would be the last of the great, the great wits in the wild tradition with, with remarks like, um, well, he went into the Bailey one day and he saw his friend um, um, Colonel Russell, Charlie Russell, the first man to make a, um, a night flight across the Channel. And he said, Charlie had had an operation on his eye and Gogarty said, immediately with a glass in his hand. He said, drink to me with thine only eye. That really is the sort of thing that they, uh, that they, they went on with. Uh, um, in that atmosphere, then, uh, Jimmy Montgomery's remarks were uh, regarded, if you might, if, uh, if I might use the phrase, as gold carrot. In fact, a lot of Gogarty's jokes were said to be Jimmy Montgomery's, but that was because 
uh, Gogarty very generously acknowledged the fact that uh, he, he often repeated Jimmy Montgomery's remarks and people wouldn't accept that they weren't Gogarty's remarks. They tended to say, well, he's just being modest. But in fact, he did, repeat, he did use Montgomery's remarks because they were so, so witty. Um, uh, when Montgomery was uh, appointed censor, uh, uh, immediately he said, I think, I'm sure he didn't prepare it because he wasn't a guy who prepared his remarks. And in fact, I don't think they did prepare them. But he said, um, my job is to avoid the Californication of Ireland. And that he, he said he was between the devil and the Holy See. Uh, that, that, they were the sort of things that, that popped out uh, in conversation. Well, what I think is remarkable about him is that um, uh, he, he oh, and indeed that group, is that there were, I suppose, three or four different stra- strains of politics in Ireland in those years, the emergent years of the new Irish states. There were those people who, for one reason or other, were sort of what they called castle Catholics. They worked in the system, and there was, since there wasn't much else to work in, we can't criticise them very much. Then there were the Redmondites, who were people who believed in getting home rule for Ireland by constitutional methods, and uh, they were certainly uh, men of people of very high-minded um, uh, ambition and uh, uh, very nearly got what they were looking for, but they didn't in the end through mischance and betrayal by the people who had promised it to, to them, the, the British government and, and other forces. And then there were the Sinn Féiners who believed uh, under Arthur Griffith that Ireland would not get her freedom and except by abstaining from Parliament and um, having a Parliament at home, which is what the 1919-21 thing was about. When that Parliament was suppressed, then they resorted to arms. And the people who had supported Griffith, like Jimmy Montgomery and like Oliver Gogarty, uh, uh, and a whole lot of um, people of what one might call the middle classes um, and indeed the, the, the uh, classes in authority did support the Griffith idea but they weren't in the majority but after 1919 they were that whole group then in 1922 after the Civil War tended to get shoved back into some sort of uh, Unionist or West British uh, confusion which was totally untrue they were Irish nationalists and Jimmy Montgomery was one of those and that's very important to think, to know Now years and years are past and gone And Mary's child is self-supporting And Mary's heart is fit to break When that young book goes out a-courting And so says she On one fine day He'll leave me lone and melancholy I'll dress me up in sailor's clothes and scour the seven seas for Johnny. Dublin in the 1920-21 period was an uneasy place to be living. Paddy Doyle was a boarder in Blackrock College at the time. I woke up one morning in the month of May and here was a, a black and tan at the top of the bed. I remember literally saying to me, lie down, sonny boy, hit me on the head with a big Wedley. Not very hard, you know. But you can imagine, I was about 12 years old at the time, black and tan on the top of the bed. They had a raid of the college, see. De Valera had been to Mass the previous day there. And uh, when they left the dormitory, we got out of our beds, had a look outside, and the army, British army, had surrounded the college, see. 
Well, the black and tans were inside doing all the dirty work, pulling the place to pieces, you know. And they ran their armoured cars through the handball alley and knocked them down, ran the armoured cars across the tennis courts and made a right mess of everything. Not far from Blackrock College, on the seafront at Booterstown, was Wellington Lodge, the home of James Montgomery. And it's only a week ago that I was looking through um, uh, documents uh, and the Mulcahy papers. That's General uh, Richard Mulcahy, who was Chief of Staff, and Michael Collins actually served as a minister, uh, as the Director of Intelligence in Mulcahy's Chief of Staff, Chief of Staff in 1919 to 21. And in it, uh, this, the houses, what we call safe houses, or what was called then safe houses, they were uh, the places where people uh, on the run from the British, um, people who were involved in physical force operations, like Collins and his friends, had a place to stay, and Jimmy Montgomery's house was given as one of them, so he was involved to that extent. He was providing the water for the fish to swim, and just as, as Gogarty's house was a safe house. Well, I remember Jim Montgomery was a great friend of my mother's. He was a relation of my mother's, and he used to visit the house. But I, being the youngest member of the family, I was never very much in on what was going on yeah. in those days. Yeah. The youngest of the family, the family were almost put out of the room. But when my mother died in 1923, I remember Jim Montgomery came out to the house you know, to see us, sympathise with us. Yeah. And he was a great man for telling stories and all that. And I remember him telling us that uh, he, uh, he used to give refuge to Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith and several other prominent politicians who were on the run that time during the War of Independence. And I remember him telling me that uh, one night, when Arthur Griffith came out, he had a bath. And, after, and during the bath, he collapsed apparently with a heart problem. But however, he came round okay. And Michael Collins and he were regular visitors to the house. It was called Wellington Lodge in Booterstown. And they took refuge there from the Black and Dance. Montgomery's daughter, Eva, was active in the Republican movement. Might have been coming in mind. Yeah. And she uh, used to carry messages around. Dublin and other areas, I suppose, on a bicycle. Messages including guns. <laughs> and she became, she was a graduate eventually of UCD and ended up as a job in the ESB. In 1923, Montgomery was appointed film censor. What was the state of film in Ireland at the time? Film historian Kevin Rockett. At, at Independence, there was very little film activity, film production activity happening in Ireland. But there was, of course, uh, Irish cinema screens were dominated by American and, to a lesser extent, British films. And the type of films being shown in Irish cinema cinemas were ones that were increasingly deemed to be in conflict with the type of cultural nationalist project as promoted uh, by people like Ernest Blythe and others. And they, and uh, Blythe and, and many other ministers, indeed Gaelic League activists like Owen McNeill, and uh, as well as people outside the government, felt that it was necessary to bring in some national controls on film censorship. Because before independence, the only controls that existed on film censorship were the often haphazard and ramshackle forms of film censorship which were introduced in Dublin Corporation in 1916. 
So what they decided to do under pressure from the Dublin Corporation councillors in particular was to introduce a national film censorship through the Censorship of Films Act of 1923. And this was passed without much controversy in the Dáil and in the Senate in May and June of 1923 and came into force from the 1st of January 1924. Uh, To fill the post of official film censor as defined by the Act, it was the one and only time that an advertisement was placed in the national newspapers. And the successful candidate for that position was James Montgomery, who was Ireland's first official film censor and who held that position from the beginning of January 24 until 1941. Montgomery recalled in later life, When I applied for the position to Mr Kevin O'Higgins, I told him I knew nothing about films, but I promised to steer the censorship fairly between the Scylla of Puritanism and the Charybdis of Hedonism. The, the cinema going public by the 1920s was largely working class. It was, of course, urban. Uh, then, as indeed now, that 60% of the Irish cinema box office was that which was taken in Dublin city and environs, so that it was a predominantly urban and indeed Dublin experience. And and because, I suppose, the, the national um, cultural and indeed Gaelic profile of the new state was very much in contradiction to this imported foreign popular culture, that the, the type of, of uh, film images being seen by 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 film audiences were ones that were deemed to be in conflict with uh, with as was the, the national approach in the post independence period. In particular, one of the the the, 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 the one of the one one of the the main objections to the cinema was not just that they introduced into Ireland uh, images and indeed actions which were deemed to infringe fairly traditional Catholic morality. But also, as some of the bishops complained, that they they were introducing into Ireland the American ideology of consumerism. As the historian J.J. Lee puts it, the regime publicly rejoiced in its commitment to the conservative conventional wisdom. We were, boasted Kevin O'Higgins, probably the most conservative-minded revolutionaries that ever put through a successful revolution. He responded to his uh, new position with great gusto, uh, and he was very quickly in conflict with film distributors and, and, and film exhibitors because uh, in his very first year in the job, he banned uh, 12% of all of the films that were submitted to him, which was in excess of 100 titles. And this led to a, a temporary boycott by London distributors of the censor's office. They attempted to undermine his uh, position as film censor, but with the full political backing of the government, uh, the distributors eventually backed down and agreed to abide by the censorship regulations, which requires that all films exhibited in public have to be uh, approved by the official censor and have to uh, carry a certificate approved by the censor. If the censor deems that a film is indecent, obscene or blasphemous, or in a more broader phrase, that it is also contrary to public morality, that film may not be exhibited in public. Montgomery's attitude to the external trappings of the Catholic Church was perhaps less serious-minded than that of many of his contemporaries. His name for those knights of the church who were more given to the temporal than the spiritual comforts was the Balls of Malta. 
In an article which he wrote for the periodical Studies after he had retired, Montgomery said that when the Censorship of Films Act was passed in 1923, many people felt that the newly formed Free State was still in danger of anglicisation from the picture houses, but he felt that the greater danger was the Los Angelesisation of Ireland. He compared the cinema to a foundling which had fallen into the wrong hands in its early childhood and considered what a great wonder it might otherwise have been. It is not only a new interpretive art form, but it is the only new one that historic man has ever known. Drawing, painting, sculpture, architecture and music have evolved with us from the dimmest dawn of prehistory and are tied up with traditions. But this method of projection on a screen of a visual flow giving unity to a trinity of light, shadow and motion is unique. Anything the mind of man can imagine and project in visual image is within its scope. Motion for its own sake is within its essence. Notwithstanding its having fallen into the wrong hands in childhood, it is still in its youth. Who can predict to what marvellous evolution it is tending. Some producers concentrated on sex appeal as if it were the only thing in the world. Their pictures of womanhood were so far below the standard of oriental morality that they lowered all decent conceptions of manly honour and womanly virtue. Triangle plays are the revolts of passion against a high ideal. They take the pleasure calculus as a criterion, and challenge the whole Christian trend of marriage. During his 17 years in office, Montgomery banned over 1,800 films. And if we look at that in the context of the total period of film censorship, that's from 1924 to the present, when about 3,000 films in total were banned, we can quickly see that Montgomery banned more than half of all of the films that were banned in the whole history of Irish film censorship. All or almost all of the films released in Irish cinemas were released for all age groups. They were given general certificates so that there was almost no films released. And in Montgomery's time, we think that there's only a very small handful of all of the films released which were given a restrictive certificate over 18 or over 16 or the like. Films with such a limited certificate might arouse the curiosity of adolescents at a dangerous age and tempt them to gain admission to a picture house under false pretenses, thus fostering a contempt for the law. Films are passed, as far as practicable, free from features calculated to influence injuriously the child mind. Consequently, drastic cuts and frequent rejections are made, which the use of the limited certificate would render unnecessary. This didn't do much for his relations with the film renters. I don't think the renters were really crazy about him because he turned down so many films. He had his own views of what was right and what was wrong. And I'm glad he's not here now. It was such a conservative and insular state in those days. Mm. I mean, emigration was the answer to employment. It was accepted. I even remember the judges now, reading about a judge, uh, somebody being charged in a court, doing st- robbing or something. And the defence would say, he would emigrate to England. So the judge would let him off on condition that he emigrated. I mean, this was the outlook. See, this was the land of saints and scholars.
England was just a bad place to be. You know? mm. It's a different world, really. Mm. Mm. I mean, sex, sex, sex was a sin almost in those days, didn't we? See? Particularly if you took pleasure in it. See? It's a mortal art. Give me the man who does the things, does the things to my heart. I love the man who takes things into his hands and gets what he demands. But Montgomery, uh, like almost all film censors, were, was precluded from publicly explaining his decisions. But there were some uh, decisions which raised some controversy. And towards the end of his career, the uh, very famous uh, Gone with the Wind was one of the films that he and his successor, Richard Hayes, had to uh, contend with. And while we don't know precisely the cuts that they demanded in that film, we can very clearly uh, speculate that the birth scene in particular is one which they cut out. Is the doctor come? No, he can't come. Oh, Scarlett, Miss Lenny's bad off. He can't come. There's nobody to come. Percy, you've got to manage without the doctor. I'll help you. Oh, lousy Miss Scarlett. Well, what is it? This led to a further set of controversies with the distributors who refused to release the cut version of the film, but as in the past, the distributors backed down and released in Ireland at that time a, a, the, 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 the version of the film which was cut under Montgomery's direction. One of the writers that Montgomery was quite opposed to and regarded him as a representative of what T.C. Murray called the new literature was Lima Flaherty and he disliked O'Flaherty's writings intensely. And when, of course, he got John Ford's version of O'Flaherty's The Informer in his sights in 1935, he promptly banned it. But after a public controversy, he uh, was, uh, not he, but the appeals board, uh, allowed the film to be publicly screened. And it was typical of, of Montgomery and his attitude to that form of realist writing of, of the 20s and 30s, um, that, uh, that, a, uh, that a film such as The Informer would, would be banned by him. Where did you get all that money you spent? I can't make nothing out of that. I tell you, I, I'm drunk. I, I tell you. you broke your first pound in Ryan. The blind man there says you gave him a pound. He did, he did, the poor man. A pound note he gave me. Two pounds you spent in the fish and chip shop. Another two pounds went for drinks in the Shebeam, where Mulholland picked you up. Five pounds you gave to some woman. Four pounds you gave to another woman known as Aunt Betty. And finally, you gave five pounds to Katie Madden. That makes just 20 pounds. Uh, me heavy sword, Dad. Me heavy sword. I, I dug I tell you. Where did you get that 20 pounds? Tell us. I can't remember. I can't remember, Dad. I, I don't know. Confess, man. Here's your soul. Who was the informer? A less controversial film was the John McCormack vehicle, Song of My Heart. Mm -hmm. 
la voglia go, che dimmi la voglia mare mi either say yes or say no. I have a wee brig of pretties and I have a ligger to nail, and I have a cow in the barn that's tied to a topney nail. Sorrow in My Heart is the first sound feature film made in Ireland um, and it um, is obviously endorsed by the critics at the time uh, uh, on the basis of course that John McCormack, uh, the papal count, uh, was the uh, of course the singer in it and the enormously popular concert uh, singer of this period. But uh, while he saw it as a film that would work against the stereotypes of Ireland as presented in earlier Irish versions uh, versions of Ireland in the American cinema, that, um, that in fact it doesn't go beyond providing a platform for McCormick's own singing with a rather uh, simplistic and, and ultimately... Um, destructive in terms of the particular women involved destructive vision of uh, of a of an irish uh, sexuality uh, which is to do with the old uh, reliables of of denial denial and death um, and and McCormick himself uh, promoted it uh, quite effectively and the film was of course very popular but in in its in its presentation that that most people separated out McCormick's singing from the actual narrative itself and those audiences that went to see it I think primarily went to see it for McCormick singing She shipped aboard a pirate boat which raided on the hot equator and with these hairy buccaneers there sailed this sweet and virtuous creator the captain thought her name was Bill. His character was most nefarious. Consorting with this heinous based, her situation was precarious. During the Eucharistic Congress, there was a good deal of cardiology going on. I don't mean, of course, in relation to the Congress itself, but in relation to the sort of social activity that was surrounding it. And... Um, the uh, new uh, government had just been elected. The Fianna Fáil government had come in after, say, ten years of coming a nail government, and they had become very democratic, and they wanted to shed all the trappings of imperialism, so they got rid of top hats, and they got rid of um, um, morning suits, mm. which were regarded as being very West British. Now, although it must be remembered that the Covenant Nail government were anything but West British, they were in fact people who had taken the Sinn Féin side from 1905-6 onwards, but who had just uh, felt that the treaty was a better way of making a fist of things and getting the British out of Ireland than they're not accepting the treaty. But anyway, they, they did accept top hats. And when Fianna Fáil came in, they got rid of their top hats. And... Um, they um, attended the Congress in, well, they were really, I suppose, today's matter. We, we call them, I used to call them Anthony Eden hats. They were quite nice, but they certainly weren't topless. Um, on the other hand, uh, when they went over to the Imperial Conference, they had to attend that in top hats and um, uh, morning suit because they wouldn't have got in otherwise. They wouldn't be let in the door. So... In addition, there was also an economic war on at the time in which um, we were not exporting 
anything to England or England had put a ban on our exports. So, so meat here was, uh, there were cows were selling for five shillings, etc., etc. So that was strongly criticised. So all that is in a, encapsulated in one extraordinary beautiful piece of verse, and it's Swiftian by Jimmy Montgomery. He said, um, We'll have the best of everything. On meat and milk we'll gorge, with cloth caps for Christ the King, but toppers for King George. See, the point was they'd received the papal nuncio in their Anthony Edens, and, but when they went to see the King, they had to put on their top hats. So, I mean, that's what one calls the perfect epigram, because it sums up... You've, you've heard me explaining it. It sums, it sums up a whole society. It sums up a whole historical uh, position. It, it, it's all done in four lines, and it then has the marvellous whiplash of, of, of art, which, uh, which, which wit is. Wit is a form of art. T'was in the Saragossa Sea Two rakish barks were idly rolling And Mary in the middle watch the quarter-deck she was patrolling. She calmly watched the neighbouring ship, then suddenly became exclaimant, for there upon the gilded poop stood Mr. Doyle in gorgeous raiment. James Montgomery retired as film censor on his 70th birthday in October 1940. To mark the occasion, his friends presented him with a testimonial and between them collected a sum of £646.10. shillings. They put their names to a souvenir booklet printed for the occasion. There were the names of more than 250 friends. They said in their address that your services to the nation are known and appreciated is evidenced by the fact that the names herein recorded represent almost every phase of Irish life. As indeed they did. The names ranged from Douglas Hyde, President of Ireland, to Jimmy O'Dea, the comedian from Joseph McGrath, founder of the Irish Hospital Sweepstakes, to the film renters with whom he had so many disagreements. From Professor Owen McNeill and Sean McEntee to the painter Jack B. Yeats and the printer and song collector Colm O'Loughlin. In the last year of his life, Montgomery began to write a memoir of his childhood on the Dublin Quays. One evening in 79, I was walking along the Campshire on Sir John's Quay before the new quay was finished. A portion from the point to Forbes Street had been completed, but the remainder right down to George's Quay was in its original 18th century state. Small ships lay side by side along the quayside, their jib booms coming over the wall. The tide was high and there was a slight swell on the river, and all the small craft, mostly schooners, were bobbing merrily. I had brought some seed to my Uncle James, who lived in one of the gas company's fine houses on the quay. He gave me two pennies, and I was rattling them in my hands when a notorious ruffian, Bowsy Burke, accosted me. Give me them coppers, says he. I won't, says I. And with that I started to run. He kicked me on the heel, and over the quay wall I went right into the tide, striking the fluke of an anchor with my head on the way down. I was fished up almost immediately, still grasping the pennies, but I was put to bed for some weeks with a very bad attack of concussion on the brain. My head was shaved for the cure of the concussion and a big bladder of ice was kept on my head. I was a holy show when I recovered as my hair wouldn't grow. My mother tried bear's grease, melted fresh butter with powdered burnt leather, but no use. To add to the misery, one day we were playing, I had a squib in my cap blazing away. 
The squib gave a final splutter, pushed down my cap, and burnt off my eyebrows and eyelashes. It was about this time I heard an old one say to my mother, Musha, Mrs. Montgomery, ma'am, isn't a flying in God's face trying to rear that poor crater? Sure he never comb a grey hair. James Montgomery died on the 14th of March, 1943. His death was given much prominence in the papers on the days that followed. There were tributes and appreciations. Dublin has lost one of its brightest spirits, wrote the playwright T.C. Murray in the Irish press. The novelist Lynn Doyle wrote in the Irish Times, The population of Dublin has shrunk sadly for myself and many another now that James Montgomery is dead. When the news reached Oliver St. John Gogarty in America, where he'd been living for some years, he wrote to his friend's son, Neil Montgomery, the architect. Now that the soul of the city has died with your father, to what would one go back? Jim Montgomery's death actually was recorded by another of the Bailey group, uh, Joe Boyd Barrett, uh, when he wrote to Oliver in New York. Oliver's in New York in the war years. And he wrote to him and uh, he was telling him about um, another friend, George Bernas, who was uh, president of the... Trinity of the Finney Phoenix Cricket Club, uh, and he says, um, 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 Joe Boyd Barrett says in his letter to Oliver, he says, the strong and merciful tyrant has been very busy here in Dublin. Dear old George Benass has left us, and also Jim Montgomery. I started a letter to you about George, but I, did, I, I couldn't finish it, it was too sad. His last words to me were, give my love to Oliver. Poor Jim, this is Jim Montgomery. Poor Jim died with a jest in his lips, as you might expect. He said, I'm hovering between wife and death. And now they're back in sweet rings and the gem that sparkles on the dodder. He lives a peaceful merchant's life and does a trade in oats and fodder. By marriage lines, she's Mrs. Doyle. She runs a stall of penny winkles. And when he hears she's that away, his single eye with joy it twinkles. <laughs> 